This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Today's guest is Jessica Brantley. Jessica is professor of English at Yale University and is the author of the previous monograph, Reading in the Wilderness, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2007. Her articles have appeared in PMLA, Exemplaria, and the Journal of Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Jessica's new book is Medieval Manuscripts and Literary Forms, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. This book takes a fresh look at some of the most widely studied texts of the medieval period, the Beowulf Manuscripts, the Ellesmere Canterbury Tales, and the Book of Marjorie Kemp. In addition to rich analyses of these books as textual artifacts, the book contains 200 high-quality illustrations that are complemented with digital resources. I uh, was delighted by reading this book, and I highly recommend it to anyone who needs a refresher in, in medieval manuscript culture or who is looking to expand their knowledge of material culture. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start by talking about the production of this book, Medieval Manuscripts and Literary Forms. It's a made book about bookmaking. Did writing and revising this book and shepherding it through the publication process reframe any of the book's ideas for you? So I love the um, meta quality of this question. It is a book about books. Um, so I think that um, I think it's a really good thing to think about. Uh, I guess I would say that the labor involved in making a book, um, you know, became clear to me. And uh, thinking about modern books and medieval books, um, the labor is different, but in some ways, I think, uh, commensurate, right? And and so it's interesting to think about all the scribal labor and artistic labor um, that goes into the writing of medieval manuscripts. Um, 
especially the difficulties of layout and design. I'll say, you mentioned the 200 pictures that are in my book. Um, and I want to shout out to the designers at Penn Press who did such a wonderful job of incorporating all of those images and laying them out page by page so that readers could read and look at the same time. Um, and that is a kind of balancing act that I think medieval book designers and scribes also um, had to had to make uh, a lot of the time. And it's not easy Um I guess another thing I would say, too, is uh, the sense of collaboration around bookmaking that is so important to medieval bookmaking. We think of scriptoria, um, but even in more commercial bookshops, um, there's a real sense of many hands at work. You know, there's an author, there are scribes, often multiple scribes, there are illuminators, um, there are binders, there are parchment makers, there, you know, all the, all the sort of hands at work in making a book. Um, that's still true. And so, again, I, I just am grateful to the collaborations that I've had with editors and um, designers and, and bookmakers of all kinds in bringing my book into being. And it was sometimes a source of anxiety, which we're going to come back to later, right? The collaborative nature of medieval manuscripts, the many hands. That... Yeah, that's right. It doesn't always go smoothly. <laughs> right, right. Um, in my case, I want to say that it did, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it doesn't always. That's true. In the publication of your book. Yes. Yeah. Um, Medieval manuscripts occupy this unique position between text and art object. The manuscripts are ornamented with all kinds of extra textual drawings and commentary. What kind of reading practices do you recommend to someone approaching these artifacts for the first time? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, I think go slowly is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, We are used to reading very quickly and modern books are often set up to facilitate quick reading, you know, to make the book a kind of transparent object that you work through, look through in order to get at the meat of the text, the the meaning um, that the book is carrying. Um, Medieval manuscripts are less transparent in that respect, and it's not as easy to make sense of what is on the page. And so I think... um, Modern readers often find themselves having to read and and sort of um, uh, struggle with a manuscript page a little bit more than they're used to when they read a modern book. It's not a seamless, smooth experience. Um, but I think there's a benefit in that too, which is that you, I mean, you mentioned the sort of um, text and art object, double identity of the manuscript. And I think... Um, What's important when you're reading a medieval manuscript is also to be aware of yourself as looking at it. So it's it's an activity of reading and looking at the same time, um, which is partly what slows you down as a reader, but also I think you know um, provides benefits because you can see things that you wouldn't have noticed um, if you were moving quickly. Yeah, I like that uh, the sort of meta quality that you're gesturing at because. You know, in my experience working with manuscripts, it's often like, is there some meaning or purpose behind this um, scribbling or this, um, you know, the difference between um, what is the word, a pen test? Versus an annotation and right, right, a pen trial, right? Is somebody just trying to figure out if they've got enough ink on their quill, or you know, are they writing something that's um, kind of a substantive response to what they're reading? It's yeah, that's an important question. Um, and sometimes I think the the um, details of medieval manuscripts are. Uh, can be overread. So scholars, I think the pendulum is swinging back in another direction um, to say, you know, scribes were trying to just like medieval book, um, like modern bookmakers to overcome 
the physicality of the text and give readers a seamless, smooth reading experience. Um, they didn't always succeed in that, but they were trying. And so some of the things that we see on the page are things that they would have wanted us to overlook. Um, and yet we sometimes get tripped up by them. We sometimes get interested in them. Um, and, and I think that's okay because we don't have to do only what medieval scribes wanted us to do. But I think it's, uh, I think it's important to keep an open mind about whether what you're seeing there whether and how it might be meaningful um, to the text that you're reading. You quote a short lyric by Geoffrey Chaucer titled Adam Scrivain. Can you read it for us? Sure. Um, this is uh, no, a poem known as Adam Scrivain, also known sometimes by a longer title, uh, Chaucer's words unto Adam, his own Scrivain, um, and Scrivain being a word that means scribe. Adam Scrivain, if ever it thee befall a Boise or Troilus for to read a newer, under the long lockers thou must have the scala, but after me marking the read more truer. So oft a die mot thee work renewer, it to correct and ache to rub and scrapa, and all is through the negligence and rapa. I, I love the sound of Middle English. That's That's wonderful. What can this lyric tell us about authorship and information technology? And, and maybe we should start with just a brief um, modern paraphrase of the book. Yes, absolutely. Um, Middle English is a beautiful language, but it's not one that we all speak <laughs> fluently. Um, so this is a, a sort of a curse um, that Chaucer gives to his scribe. He says, if you ever happen to write Boethius or Troilus again, and he's talking about two works of his own writing, a translation of Boethius's um, Constellation of Philosophy into Middle English, um, or the great poem Troilus and Crusade, he says, you've written them in the past. If you ever write them again, I hope you get a nasty, itchy a scab on your scalp unless you follow my words more uh, closely and truly and honestly, unless you do, you know, unless you write better. So often I have to redo your work. I have to rub it and scrape it off the parchment. And it's all because of your negligence and your haste. So that's a little paraphrase of the poem, but it's kind of a, yeah, as I say, a cursed poem. You know, I hope that you get this terrible scalp disease um, if you don't take more care with my words. Not not the friendliest note to a, a collaborator. <laughs> No, not at all. This is one of those examples where collaboration, I think, is is fraught, um, at least on the evidence of the poem. So, um, so yeah, you asked what it could tell us about bookmaking culture, and I think that's exactly the question to ask. People have interpreted this small poem in several ways, many ways. Um, one is sort of allegorical, like, you know, the scribe's name is Adam. Shouldn't we be thinking about the fall of man and the kind of the introduction of error into the world, right? And, and what Chaucer's really talking about here is something, um, you know, cosmological. Uh, on the other hand, um, people tend to read the poem, especially these days, historically, um, to wonder, was there a scribe? Was he called Adam? Did Chaucer work with him closely through his whole career? Um, the answer to those questions recently um, has seemed to be yes, because the hand of a scribe called Adam Pinkhurst has been identified as um, the scribe of several of Chaucer's most important manuscripts. And it seems that Chaucer, that he sort of specialized in English literature and, and maybe worked with Chaucer um, over a period of years. So perhaps this is a poem addressed to Adam Pinkhurst specifically. Um, 
I think we'll never know that, uh, though the temptation to believe it is, is almost irresistible. Um, but I think it, it's also, it's more important than to focus perhaps on what we can know, which is what this poem reveals about bookmaking culture. Um, and I think as you, as you rightly notice, it's not so easy. So, you know, an author might work closely with a scribe. That's what this poem implies, but that work might not always go smoothly. Um, the author might come along and correct the scribe, which I think is interesting evidence that, you know, we think of the author as primary, creating a text, and then the scribe as belated, coming along, you know, sort of cleaning up the pieces, writing it down. Um, but this seems to be more of a back and forth where um, Adam writes, and then Chaucer, as author, has to sort of come along behind him and clean up the messes he's made and rub and scrape the parchment and try to erase what he's made. Um and so I think that's one of the uh, one of the implications of it is that there was this close relationship that kind of toggled back and forth. And so the the production of the book is less linear in some senses, where the author is interjecting right. themselves at different points. And that's uh, right. That's right. A feedback loop, which is yeah, really fascinating. That's right. And we we sometimes think of what scribes do as a species of authorship, because after all, they are writing. And sometimes they take on to themselves role, the role of editor um, if they don't like what they're copying and they think they can improve it. Uh, sometimes they take on the role of, of author, something we would think of as closer to edging closer to, to true authorship when they compose um, and add things to the text that they are writing. Um, so yeah, so that kind of fuzziness here about who's the author and who's the scribe, um, who's doing the work of erasing and correcting and who's doing the work of, of composition. I think all of that is uh, implicit in this poem. The second chapter of this book has a description of, and the title is the anatomy of a medieval manuscript. I think it will serve as a great uh, primer on scripts, writing instruments, annotation, correction, and anything else one would need to engage critically with medieval manuscripts. I want to focus on two things. First, could you briefly describe the range of writing surfaces found in medieval manuscripts? Sure, yes. I mean, if you're talking about the codex, which is the book that we know today, the shape of a book that we know, um, that is to say many pages connected on one side, um, uh, so that they could be turned, um, then the primary materials for that kind of an object in this period are parchment, um, which is prepared animal skin, cow, sheep, goat, um, varieties of animal skin, uh, prepared for writing, um, or paper, indeed. And at the end of the Middle Ages, paper became a pretty common manuscript material as well, a writing surface. Um, there are other kinds of inscriptional surfaces. You know, you can imagine um, people wrote on buildings, they wrote on pottery, <laughs> they wrote on rings, they wrote on all kinds of, of objects. Um, uh, and they they wrote sometimes, the other thing, I, those are monumental species of writing that um, are meant for permanence writing across um, the top of a doorway, for example. But they also wrote on wax sometimes, and the point of that was not permanence, but rather, um, you know, a kind of temporary writing surface where um, things could be drafted and ideas could be tried out before they were copied into um, into a book. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a wide range of surfaces from the really permanent to the really temporary um, 
I think what's amazing is how permanent parchment is. So people often think of medieval manuscripts as fragile when they're in rare book libraries looking at them. Um, but they're actually remarkably sturdy. I mean, they've, you know, withstood um, hundreds of years of use, and they're often a lot more uh, sturdy and less fragile than, say, a 19th century book that was printed on acid paper that is now crumbling. You know, when you try to turn the pages, they fall apart. Um, Yeah. One of the reasons parchment was preferred was because it was more durable than than paper, right? That's right. That's right. And more durable than papyrus, which is the other surface that I didn't mention, but um, which was uh, very common in the ancient world. Um, But it works best in dry climates like Egypt, for example, and uh, in Europe, uh, papyrus, uh, which is made from the leaves of plants, um, just really wasn't a very strong or durable surface. And so parchment developed um, as a way of providing a more durable surface for writing Um, And then, of course, paper in the later part of the period, less durable, but uh, cheaper. And so had obvious uh, advantages. And something I had either forgotten or or didn't know was that you can even tell um, which side of the skin they're they're writing on, right? Because of uh, follicles, the follicles that still leave. That's right. Yeah. Texture. That's right. So you can tell the hair side from the flesh side. Um, and when you start throwing those words around, it gets a little bit, um, uh, it gets very creaturely very fast because you can't forget that you're dealing with the skin of an animal when you notice the hair follicles on one side and then the sort of scraped clean flesh on the other side. Second, uh, can you talk about annotation? What was the role of an annotator and how did they guide the interpretation of these texts? That's a great question, too. Um, Again, I'd say that there's a range of kinds of annotation. Um, Some of it is very formalized and almost authorial. I mean, some a few authors did annotate their own texts, an author like Boccaccio, for example, Um, But uh, sometimes annotations are really formalized. They travel with the text so that every scribe copying the text also copies the annotations and they're sort of formally provided for in the layout of the page Um, and often, you know, travel with their author's names as well. They're they're kind of that formal, a commentary, annotation as commentary on a text. Um, Way on the other side um, of the spectrum, you would get casual jottings that might be, you know, indistinguishable from pen trials, as you were saying before. Um, And so there you're seeing um, something, you're seeing something like a reader's in the moment engagement with a text. Uh, So for scholars, that second kind of annotation is in many ways more interesting than the first formalized kind, right? Because... um, the the jottings and annotations seem to record for us a moment of reading that is otherwise um, impossible to capture. So um, you can see evidence for reception of the text in that kind of annotation. On the other hand, um, once you once those jottings have been put in the margins of a book and that annotation exists, it then shapes or conditions the next reader's approach to the text. So this is you know you were asking about um, how the annotations might shape interpretation of the text. And I think that it um, that, that it certainly happens that way and it sort of goes back and forth, right? So whether you're seeing evidence of reception or evidence of um, the production of meaning when you look at the annotations is kind of an interesting question. 
Yeah, I find um, these annotations really fascinating. Uh, I'm thinking of an example, a French owner of, uh, of the Canterbury Tales, a copy of the Canterbury Tales, where the copying cuts off and the annotator says something like, enough of this story, it's too sad. Do you have a favorite annotation of a medieval manuscript? Well, I guess what comes to mind is in some ways the the flip side of that, um, which is readers noticing when things are missing. Um, and so I'm thinking about an annotation that comes in Hockleave's Regiment of Princes, where Hockleave has intended for a picture of Chaucer to be inserted into his own poem, because he's talking about Chaucer and honoring him. And he says, I've had his picture made right here. And some reader who's been... Um, and in some of the manuscripts of the regiment, there is a picture. So the bookmakers took the author's words um, at face value and they said, okay, now we have to put a picture in here because he's calling for it. But in other manuscripts, there is no picture, either because they didn't notice that he called for one or didn't um, care to add one. But readers sometimes object to that. So, so there are annotations that say things like, his picture should be here. Um, <laughs> and then that way, you know, a reader is really reading the text, um, but also sort of pushing back against some of the bookmaking decisions that were made right, right, before he got right. his hands on it. That's wonderful. Um, the, your book also features a series of case studies, um, widely read, read texts like the Canterbury Tales, as well as um, less um, widely read um, texts like uh, A Psalter. The first case study is about a copy of Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People that was owned by John Moore in the 17th century. The manuscript contains perhaps the first poem in English, though most of what we think we know about Cadman's hymn is a mix of speculation and conjecture. Can you talk to us about this poem and its textual curiosities? Sure, yes. Um, I mean, Cadman's hymn is... is um famous as the first poem in English that we have written down. But at the same time, um, I think it's full of mystery and its origin story is um, fascinatingly complex and in some ways opaque. Um, so for people who don't know the story of Cadman's hymn, uh, Bede in his Latin ecclesiastical history tells the story of a cowherd named Cadman. It's a miracle story, really, um, because this cowherd is completely unable to sing at feasts. He's too shy. He's unlearned. He can't do it at all. And so when the harp is going around the feast room, he gets up and leaves and goes off to the cowshed. And one day he does this, and an angel appears to him in the cowshed and says, sing me something. And Cadman says, oh, I can't. I can't. That's exactly why I'm here. I can't sing anything. And the angel says, no, sing me something. And all of a sudden, miraculously, he's able to sing creatures. Um, and so he sings this very short poem, which is a praise of God and of creation um, in English. And um, then he wakes up and he's able to adjust it a little bit. He talks to others about this miracle and they welcome him into the abbey, um, not as a cowherd, but as a full member. Um, and he writes other vernacular poetry and becomes very well known as a, as a vernacular poet. Um, so we know this story because Bede tells it to us in Latin, and he even includes a paraphrase of the hymn of creation in his Latin text. But then right after that, he says, actually, I'm giving you the sense here, but it's not as good as the English, because anytime you translate a text, you lose something. And so I'm giving you these Latin words, but they're not the same as Cadman's miraculous English words. Um, 
and and the really interesting thing about the manuscript tradition, I think, is that in a lot of manuscripts of Bede, about 20 of them, um, scribes have come along and written the English of Cadman's hymn in the manuscript. So it seemed to them, you know, that that they were taking beat up, I guess, on his idea that the Latin really wouldn't do. And that if you wanted access to this moment of miracle um, that was uh, oral, that was divinely inspired, um, that was in English poetry, that you need to have it there on the page in English poetry. So in the Morbid, there is um, a version of Cadman's hymn in English. It's at the end of the manuscript, so it's not on the page with the uh, Latin paraphrase, um, which it is in some other cases. Um, but it is at the end of the manuscript, and it seemed important to somebody to have that recorded, to have it recorded in English. Um, the funny thing about the history of it, though, is that we think that little scrap of English at the end of the manuscript is the most important thing in the manuscript, um, those of us who are looking for the history of English of English literature. Um, but as far as the manuscript is concerned, it's not, right? It's, it's very much in the margin. It's very much at the end. It's very much an addition, an addendum. Um, it's not the central, the central feature at all. Let's talk about St. Albans Psalter, which was owned by Christina of Marchiate. Yes, uh, that's right. Am, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Yes, yes, you. that's right. Christina, um, Christina was a wealthy, independent-minded 11th, 11th century woman from an Anglo-Saxon family. And the book can be read as something of a veiled commentary on her life. This is a book that includes 40-something religious illustrations, from the expulsion uh, from paradise to the washing of the feet to the Pentecost. What does this book reveal about manuscript ownership and how might a focus on ownership allow us to recover the history of medieval women? Those are great questions. Um, the St. Norman Psalter, um, first of all, I want to, I, I guess, pick up on um, a comment that you made before about the reading of Psalters, um, that it's it's something of a surprise to find a Psalter in a collection of studies like mine, because I'm interested in thinking about the history of English literature. And the Psalter isn't a book that we've normally thought of as a very literary book. It has, it's a book of the Bible, contains all the Psalms, um, and it's not obviously connected to Chaucer, for example, in any clear way. On the other hand, we know that medieval people read the Psalter um, daily and, uh, you know, or weekly. They, they read it intensively uh, all the time. And so their lives really unfolded um, in the context of the Psalms um, in ways that I think we sometimes forget about and, and, and don't fully appreciate. So it's important for me to include the Psalter in this collection of manuscripts because I think it, um, it reveals to us what medieval people were um, most of the time really reading. And um, in terms of Christine of Marquette, I think it's rather wonderful because we have a version of her life that tells us about her. And her life notes that she reads the Psalter and that the Psalter, she keeps the book of the Psalter open on her lap. And this comes in an anecdote about how um, the devil works through toads, sends a bunch of toads um, to torment her. And to they, they do that by sitting on the Psalter so that she can't read it. Um, but it is said she has the Psalter. She always has it open on her lap. And that's where the toads can kind of come and um, try to impede her praying. Um, 
as you won't be surprised to hear that they don't impede her praying and she continues to sing the Psalms. Um, but I think that the role the book plays in that particular anecdote is really interesting because we actually do have this manuscript, the St. Albans Psalter, which um, we're pretty sure was owned by Christina. So we, we, it may be the very book that uh, is mentioned in that anecdote about the toads. Um, and there are lots of things in the manuscript that indicate that it might have been intended for her from her name in the calendar um, and obits or death notices of people who were close to her to um, images of women um, uh, in, in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect them, more images of women than you might expect. Um, and a saint's life, the life of St. Alexis, that in many ways parallels Christina's own life. Um, for example, her chaste marriage. Uh, St. Alexis also had a chaste marriage. Um, and so when we put the pieces together of this somewhat unusual, very beautiful book, um, we can see a number of ways in which it might be connected to one person and the oddities of the manuscript itself might be explained by its connection to its reader. Um, so that's what I think is really fascinating about thinking about who owned this book and why it mattered that she was the person who did. Um, you asked about medieval women as well, and I just want to say that um, we can think about medieval women as writers, and we do often. We have some named people, uh, named women who were writers, Marjorie Kemp, for example, and I'm also thinking about her book in another case study in this book. Um, and we have some evidence for women as readers as well. Um, but I think that the evidence for women owning books um, as patrons or, or even just as owners, is there's actually more evidence of that. So I think if we are thinking about women's uh, participation in literary culture, we need to think not only about uh, women who were named as authors and women who um, we know read this or that, but also just the wide variety of books that women owned. Language is another theme across these case studies. The St. Albans Psalter is in French and Latin, as are many of these manuscripts. The Gawain manuscript is almost entirely written in Middle English, and it includes Pearl, Patience, Cleanness, and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I should note that all of those titles were given to the poems later. What kinds of questions does this manuscript raise? Uh, specifically, does their being gathered in one manuscript indicate they have a common author, in your opinion? And how would a single author shape how we read the individual poems, or conversely, how would different authors change how we um, how we approach the poems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Cotton Nero A10 is one of the most famous manuscripts of Middle English literature because it is the singular copy of poems that everybody really loves. So Going in the Green Knight is one, um, Pearl is another that, that many readers um, since the 14th and 15th century have admired. Um, and loved. Uh, and it is commonly thought that the four poems you mentioned in the manuscript are all by the same person. And that is because they share some commonalities of language and they share commonalities of style and form. Um, alliteration is important in a lot of the poems, even though some of them rhyme as well. Um, and even across some topics, there is a consistency across the four poems. But um, the differences are perhaps arguably even more interesting and more um, striking than the similarities. Um, the poems are about very different things. There's a romance about an Arthurian knight. There's a, um, 
an elegy for a lost daughter. There's a kind of sermon um, on a biblical uh, subject, and there's a versified biblical story. So, you know, many different things are going on. Um, and even though the forms are in some ways similar, they're also in other ways different. And so um, they're just, it's interesting to note that we think of these four poems as being by the same person when they really are quite different in their interests and their forms. Um, and so one question I have and that I want to put to readers of my book is um, how much does the physical codex itself, the fact that these four poems are in the same manuscript, how much does that fact shape our sense of their uh, authorship and condition our response, our expectation that they're by the same person? Um, it's a little early for an anthology to be organized around authorship. Um, that is, it, it's a late 14th century manuscript and um we think that uh, late 14th century poems, and we think that they, you know, it's just um, early for there to be uh, a collection around that theme. And so um, they might have been collected according to something else, and they might be by different authors. Um, there is, as it happens, a kind of a way to think about this, which is that another poem in a different manuscript that some scholars think is by the same author. Um, but other scholars are more hesitant about it. And I wonder, just as a thought experiment for myself, um, you know, how would we respond to these five poems if all five of them were in the same book? Um, would we be as likely to say that St. Erkenwald, that's the fifth poem, um, is, uh, is, you know, by someone else? So those are the questions that I try to open up in my discussion of that manuscript. I don't... Um, have answers for them all, but I think that it's important to consider the question from this perspective. You also take up the Ellesmere Chaucer, which is the main source for the Canterbury Tales. Um, those of us who first encountered the Canterbury Tales in standardized uh, modern editions with authoritative footnotes, it might be surprising to learn about its transmission history, including a complicated story about composition and scribal copying. What is the importance of this manuscript to how we read Chaucer? And how does the Ellesmere manuscript compare or contrast with uh, another manuscript, the uh, Hingwort manuscript. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I love the Ellesmere Chaucer. It is, um, as you say, it's it's uh, it is the manuscript that represents the Canterbury Tales to us as modern readers most closely, because most editions of the Canterbury Tales have been based on it, um, at least in terms of the text it contains and the order in which we reach, read them. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting and important to realize as a modern reader of Chaucer is that the text is unfinished. So the manuscripts that we have, 80-some manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, offer the tales, um, different collections of tales, not all of them all the time, and offers them in different orders so that um, different readers in the Middle Ages would have encountered Chaucer's poem um, as a quite different text, really. Um, you know, if the if the tales are in a different order, it makes a substantial difference. Um, the Wife of Bath's prologue is interesting in this context because it seems, uh, it, it follows the Man of Law's tale and epilogue in the Ellesmere manuscript. And there have been these questions about whether the Wife of Bath is responding to the Man of Law directly or indirectly. And that raises all kinds of questions about the sequencing of these uh, these tales. Is that right? 
Yes, yes. And I think that's really important to recognize that the sequence of the tales is unsettled, um, that we usually read them in Ellesmere order, because whoever put the Ellesmere manuscript together seems to have uh, taken a pretty strong editorial hand and smoothed things out and made them make sense. But um, the Canterbury Tales exists in other sequences and other orders in other manuscripts, um, namely Hengert, for example. And it isn't um, clear what Chaucer would have wanted, right? The sequence of the tales is not fixed. I used to have a, a professor who said that we should always read the Canterbury Tales in an edition that was a loose leaf notebook so that we could take the tales out and move them around and read it again and see if it made a difference. That's um, great. That sounds so like creativity. Yeah. 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 I think that would be fun. Next time you teach the wife about it. Um, but, but it matters because, you know, either she's responding to the man of law's tale and his um, story about, um, feminine suffering and, and feminine fidelity, um, or she's not, and she's responding to something else. But it, you know, it makes a sense, it makes difference to us as interpreters of the tale, um, the tales to, to know what sequence they're in. Um, and yet that's a decision that editors have to make for us because we don't really have access to what Chaucer would have wanted. Before we started recording, we talked a little bit about how the book is well complemented with online resources, such as uh, archival resources at the British Library, the Bodleian Library, the Cambridge University Library. For teachers of pre-modern literature, what can these digital resources offer for classroom use? For researchers, what can this blend of, um, of a, a hard copy book and these online resources offer a researcher. Uh, how do you envision an undergraduate using these online archives to better understand medieval authorship writing and editing? Yes, it was very important to me that the book, um, as a physical hard copy book, be engaged with all the things that we as modern readers have access to online. And um, I should say, when I first started to think about the book, which was a long time ago, the press I was then in conversation with, which um, was not pen, um, suggested putting a CD-ROM in the back of the book that could contain copies, images of all the manuscripts that I was talking about. Um, and I'm really glad I didn't publish it in that way, because I think this is a much more user-friendly and durable way to, to do it. Um, but what I hope is that the book will be used in connection with and in concert with um, full digital facsimiles, which are free and online and fully available in very high quality, beautiful, beautiful um, photography uh, hosted by the libraries that hold the manuscripts themselves. So my feeling is that those libraries um, provide a durable and lasting uh, um, space for that digital material, and that students will always be able to go there and turn the pages of the manuscripts that I'm talking about. Um, each of the case studies offers a handful of images to illustrate the points I make in the short essay. Um, but I'm hopeful that a student could um, go, you know, whose interest was was um, sparked by the the case study, could go and find the whole thing online, the whole book, and ask new questions of it, right? Turn the pages to pages that aren't reproduced in the book, um, maybe bring some of the same questions to those new pages or develop new questions. Um, I'll also say that I think um, I discuss each object, each case study object, under the rubric of one particular theoretical question that has to do with literary studies. So we've talked about a lot of them already, ownership or authorship, um, writing, editing, um, 
language literature. These are big questions for literary study. Um, but those connections of that of, of, of a particular question, such as authorship, with a particular manuscript, such as Cotton Nero A10, um, is in some sense arbitrary. I mean, I chose the manuscripts that I thought really exemplified uh, interesting takes on these questions, but that's not to say that the manuscripts don't exemplify interesting takes on lots of other questions as well. So in, contained in the book is a, um, a sort of cross-referencing list, actually, to suggest to people who are reading it that though I've asked them to think about Cotton Nero A10 in terms of authorship, they might also think about it in terms of language, or they might also think about it in terms of um, illustration, or they might also think of it in terms of um, afterlives. And uh, so that's the work that I hope that readers of this book, especially students and researchers, will be able to do after they've read it. I'd like to ask you about your approach to scholarly writing. Um, Do you have strategies for revision? Do you have suggestions um, for early career scholars in terms of finding space and time to do your own research to get the writing done? Um, Do you have um, strategies and techniques for for academic writing? These are big questions. (laughs) Um, uh, And I I guess I'll share just um, some thoughts that come from writing this book project in particular for me. Um, One is that it emerges from my teaching. I think that's pretty clear throughout. Um, And so there was, in fact, that beautiful synergy that we all fantasize about all the time um, between my teaching life and my research life as I was working on the book. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's important. It's not always true that my research can be brought into my classroom um, in the way that it was here, but I think whenever it can be, it's valuable, not only because it's efficient, you know, when a professor is trying to balance research and teaching, and that's difficult, um, but also because it really is... Um, stimulating, right? That's the fantasy that, that what's happening in the classroom is um, is helping your creative process as you think through topics with your students um, who are more brilliant than you are and raise things in ways that you really need to think about. Um, so that happened in the in the creation of this book and that was really exciting for me. Another thing that happened in the creation of this book was that I got involved with a Mellon-funded program for dissertation writers that was piloted at Yale um, that was a writing-in-residence program. So the idea was that the students who were writing their dissertations with uh, two faculty members would just turn up at the library every day and sit down at nine and stand up at five. I mean, we also stood up and walked around at other moments in the day, but basically we were writing together um, in a beautiful reading room of the library all day, every day uh, for a summer for, um, I think it was eight weeks. And um, that was really exciting. And we got together at lunch and we talked about writing strategies and precisely the kind of thing that you're you're asking about. Um, but, but a couple of things came out of that experience. One is uh, time. So just really um, treating it as a thing that you begin to do and then you stop to do and you, you, know, you don't wait for the muse to come, but rather you dedicate a certain amount of time every day to making some progress and you will make some progress. Um, the other thing I think that was really important about that experience was community. So I, you know, even though we were writing at our own desks in a separate space, um, the idea that people were sort of waiting for you to turn up in the morning and that over lunch you could talk about what problems you'd had and what struggles you'd encountered with your project, um, 
that was all enormously sustaining and and just really helpful to work that you know we all know happens so often in isolation and makes us feel i think as if we're struggling with ideas um all by ourselves but uh community is really important to me in my process of writing um and was especially important in the creation of this book that's wonderful can i circle back to uh, you were talking about um the, the the feedback loop between teaching and research mm-hmm. did you bring uh, like sections of the book into your undergraduate class or is it more like for instance your lecture notes or your discussion notes fed into the book project so a little bit of both. I mean, um, I teach an undergraduate class on medieval manuscripts, but this book is actually related more closely to the graduate level class that I teach um, to English PhD students because it's focused on literary questions and literary uses of manuscripts. Um, and I have brought some of these case studies into that class. Uh, we also have worked on different case studies in that class, but the format of sort of an introduction and then a series of case studies um, is a format that I developed for the class, and then it made its way into the book. Yeah, I've always considered doing this myself, bringing in some of my own writing, work in progress, to sort of give insight to students as to the process. You know that mm-hmm. a a peer reviewed article doesn't just materialize one day; it's a <laughs> step by step process. And I think one of the things I admired about this book, uh, Medieval English Manuscripts and Literary Forms, is that uh, it's quite a generous book. It's really inviting readers to participate and to uh, learn how to do this research. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I really appreciate uh, your saying that because that was my intention to really model how to ask new research questions of old material um, and to do that by bringing in case studies, which could, uh, which have sparked my interest and and research questions for me, but which also I think are um, capacious enough and rich enough as examples to spark all kinds of new questions in uh, new readers. Um, it was hard to choose the case studies. I, I want to say that a case study approach make, you know, was, was really important to me. But at the same time, um, you know, this is a dozen manuscripts. I could have chosen a different dozen, which would have been equally wonderful. And I'm sure that readers of the book will have their own dozen that they'll think of um, as really important and rich. But, but really, as I said, it's a, a way of um, just using an object as a an entree as a, as a welcome to asking um, these kinds of research questions of these kinds of manuscripts. Are there uh, chapters that you attempted that you're somewhat, um, you, you regret not, not writing or it, what is the alternate universe version of this book? Are there chapters that, that um, would be in the book? The 12 manuscripts not taken, <laughs> not chosen. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love the manuscript of the York plays. Um, I wrote about the end town plays in terms of performance instead of York. Um, but there's a lot of wonderful, uh, there are many wonderful questions to ask of York. Um, the Vernon manuscript is an incredibly important um, miscellany, a giant miscellany of Middle English um, 
verse and prose. And uh, it would have been fun to think about Vernon. Um, these are some of the things I've thought about with my students in the past. Uh, the Book of Brome, which is a very interesting Beinecke manuscript, um, is another one that I might have put into another version of this book, but um, but I'm happy with my dozen <laughs> for now. Um, and I think students will go off and do research on those other objects in the future. And now that this book is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Is there a scholarly project, a, a class idea, a monograph, an article, or a non-scholarly project that you're excited about? So I am in the middle of a scholarly monograph and um, hoping to finish it up soon. Um, my current book project is a literary history of the Book of Hours. So um, there is a Psalter in um, medieval manuscripts and literary forms. Um, there's not a Book of Hours, but I'm interested in thinking about connections between the Latinate culture of reading the hours, um, which are prayers to be said at certain times of the day. Um, and uh, the reading of vernacular literature. So I'm, as I said, I'm thinking of this book as a literary history of the Book of Hours. Um, there have been lots of art history, uh, art historical considerations of these books and thinking about their importance for religious history. Um, but what I'm hoping to do is bring literary questions and questions about reading history um, to the late medieval Book of Hours. Excellent. We'll keep our eyes out for that project. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jessica. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure.